Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to episode 14 of Pulp. I'm Jonathan Pezza, your host, and this is a show where we take a journey through the literary underground of pulp fiction, one story at a time. We are breaking ground once again into a new genre with today's episode. The tales of adventure told in the pulp magazines of the early and mid-20th century come in many forms. And today we are diving into the first of our sea stories, You would think that this genre would focus itself mainly on pirates and buccaneers, and many did, but tales exploring humanity's romance with the oceans and the intrepid sailors that answer the call to brave their myriad dangers can't be overlooked. It's easy to forget how mysterious our planet was only a short time ago. If today we want to see what a tribal warrior from the inland of Papua New Guinea looks like, it's only a Google search away. And if you want to visit, well, 2020 not included, it's as easy as booking a flight, a hotel, and a tour guide. But for the original readers of Pulp Fiction, the mysteries of the natural world and the adventure promised by the far shores and distant horizons could only be seen by those willing to risk life and limb on the seas. Our story today is The Mystery of the Derelict by William Hope Hodgson, and it was first published in the British pulp magazine The Storyteller In July 1907, William Hope Hodgson was a prolific writer whose life was ended far too short during World War I's Battle of the Somme. He is often remembered for his contributions to supernatural horror, many of the stories nautical-themed. Hodgson, unlike many of the other authors who wrote in the genre, spent more than six years at sea, and this experience allowed his stories to immerse the reader in the vivid detail only capable by those who experienced life at sea firsthand. Now, before we jump into the story, I'll take a second to explain a little of the nautical terminology used in this tale. Bear with me. The two main ships in the story are four-masted sailing ships called barks. Each mast carried three or four square-rigged sails that hung from crossbeams referred to as booms. Larboard was the left of the ship, and starboard was the right. The main deck of these ships had a cabin built at both ends. The front, or bow, and the back or stern. The bow cabin was called the forecastle, referred to most of the time as foxel, and at the stern was the officer's cabin, which often had windows known as galleries facing the rear of the ship, and on the roof of which 
is where most officers stood during the day, and it was called the poop deck, from the Latin term pupus, meaning rear. Now, I promise it's not as complicated as it sounds. So, without further delay, sit back, turn out the lights, and let me tell you a story. All the night had the four-masted ship Terrahawk lain motionless in the drift of the Gulf Stream, for she had run into a calm patch, into a calm, into a stark calm, which had lasted now for two days and nights. On every side, had it been light, might have been seen dense masses of floating gulf weed, studding the ocean even to the distant horizon. In places, so large were the weed masses that they formed long, low banks that by daylight might have been mistaken for low-lying land. Upon the lee side of the poop, Duthi, one of the prentices, leaned with his elbow upon the rail and stared out across the hidden sea, to where in the eastern horizon showed the first pink and lemon streamers of the dawn, faint delicate streaks and washes of color. A period of time passed, and the surface of the leeward sea began to show a great expanse of gray touched with odd wavering belts of silver, and everywhere the black specks and islets of the weed. Presently the red dome of the sun protruded itself into sight above the dark rim of the horizon, and abruptly the watching Duthi saw something, a great, shapeless bulk that lay some miles away to starboard, and showed black and distinct against the gloomy red mass of the rising sun. Something in sight to board, sir, he informed the mate, who was leaning, smoking over the rail that ran across the break of the poop. I can just make out what it is. The mate rose from his easy position, stretched himself, yawned, and came across to the boy. Whereabouts, Toby? He asked warily and yawning again. There, sir, said Duthie, alias Toby, brought away on the beam and right in the track of the sun. It looks something like a big houseboat or a haystack. The mate stared in the direction indicated and saw the thing which puzzled the boy, and immediately the tiredness went out of his eyes and face. Pass me the glasses off the skylight, Toby, he commanded, and the youth obeyed. After the mate had examined the strange object through his binoculars for maybe a minute, he passed them to Toby, telling him to take a squint and say what he made of it. Looks like an old powder hulk, sir, exclaimed the lad after a while, and to this description the mate nodded agreement. Later, when the sun had risen somewhat, they were able to study the derelict with more exactness. She appeared to be a vessel of an exceedingly old type, mastless, and upon the hull of which had been built a roof-like superstructure, the use of which they could not determine. She was lying just within the borders of one of the weed banks, and all her side was splotched with a greenish growth. It was her position within the borders of the weed that suggested to the puzzled mate how so strange an unseaworthy-looking craft had come so far abroad into the greatness of the ocean, for suddenly it occurred to him that she was neither more nor less than a derelict from the vast Sargasso Sea a vessel that had possibly been lost to the world scores and scores of years gone, 
perhaps hundreds. The suggestion touched the mate's thoughts with solemnity, and he fell to examining the ancient hulk with an even greater interest, and pondering on all the lonesome and awful years that must have passed over her as she had lain desolate and forgotten in that grimy cemetery of the ocean. Through all that day, the derelict was an object of the most intense interest to those aboard the Terra Hawk, every glass in the ship being brought into use to examine her. Yet, though within no more than six or seven miles of her, the captain refused to listen to the mate's suggestions that they should put a boat into the water and pay the stranger a visit. For he was a cautious man, and the glass warned him, and the glass warned him that a sudden change might be expected in the weather, so that he could have no one leave the ship on unnecessary business. But for all that he had caution, curiosity was by no means lacking in him, and his telescope at intervals was turned on the ancient hulk through all the day. Then, it would be about six bells in the second dog watch, a sail was sighted astern, coming up steadily but slowly. By eight bells, they were able to make out that a small bark was bringing the wind with her. Her yards were squared and every stitch set, yet the night had advanced apace, and it was nigh on eleven o'clock before the wind reached those aboard the Tarawak. When at last it arrived, there was a slight rustling and a quaking of canvas, and odd creaks here and there in the darkness amid the gear as each portion of the running and standing rigging took up the strain. Beneath the bows and alongside there came a gentle rippling noise as the vessel gathered way, and so for the better part of the next hour they slid through the water at something less than a couple of knots in the sixty minutes. To starboard they could see the red light of the little bark which had brought up the wind with her, and was now forging slowly ahead, being better able evidently than the big heavy tarawak to take advantage of so slight a breeze. About a quarter to twelve, just after the relieving watch had been roused, lights were observed to be moving to and fro upon the small bark, and by midnight it was palpable that through some cause or other she was dropping astern. When the mate arrived on deck to relieve the second, the latter officer informed him of the possibility that something unusual had occurred aboard the bark telling of the lights about her decks, and how that in the last quarter hour she had begun to drop astern. On hearing the second mate's account, the first sent one of the prentices for his night glasses, and when they were brought studied the other vessel intently, that is, so well as he was able through the darkness, for even through the night glasses she showed only as a vague shape surmounted by the three dim towers of her masts and sails. Suddenly the mate gave out a sharp exclamation, for beyond the bark there was something else shown dimly in the field of vision. He studied it with great intentness, ignoring for an instant the second's queries as to what had caused him to exclaim. All at once he said with a little note of excitement in his voice, The derelict! The barks run into the weed around that old hooker! The second mate gave a mutter of surprised assent and slapped the rail. That's it, he said. That's why we're passing her. And that explains the lights. If they're not fast in the weed, they'll probably run slap into the blessed derelict. One thing, said the mate, lowering his glasses and beginning to fumble for his pipe. She won't have enough way on her to do much damage. The second mate, who was still peering through his binoculars, murmured an absent agreement and continued to peer. The mate, for his part, filled and lit his pipe, 
remarking meanwhile to the unhearing second that the light breeze was dropping. Abruptly, the second mate called his superior's attention, and in an instant, so it seemed, the failing wind died entirely away, the sails settling down into runkles with little rustles and flutters of sagging canvas. What's up? asked the mate and raised his glass. There's something queer going on over yonder, said the second. Look at the lights moving about and... Did you see that? The last portion of his remark came out swiftly, with a sharp accentuation of the last word. What? said the mate, staring hard. They're shooting, replied the second. Look, there again. Rubbish, said the mate, a mixture of unbelief and doubt in his voice. With the failing wind, there had come a great silence upon the sea. And abruptly, from far across the water, sounded the distant, dullish thud of a gun, followed almost instantly by several minute but sharply defined reports, like the cracking of a whip out in the darkness. Jove, cried the mate, I believe you're right. He paused and stared. There, he said, I saw the flashes again. They're firing from the poop, I believe. I must call the old man. He turned and ran hastily down into the saloon knocked on the door of the captain's cabin and entered. He turned up the lamp and, shaking his superior into wakefulness, told him of the thing he believed to be happening aboard the bark. It's mutiny, sir. They're shooting from the poop. We ought to do something. The mate said many things breathlessly, for he was a young man, but the captain stopped him with a quietly lifted hand. I'll be up with you in a minute, Mr. Johnson, he said and the mate took the hint and ran up on deck. Before the minute had passed, the skipper was on the poop, staring through the night glasses at the bark and the derelict. Yet now aboard the bark, the lights had vanished, and there showed no more the flashes of discharging weapons. Only there remained a dull, steady glow of the port side light, and behind it the night glasses showed the shadowy outline of the vessel. The captain put questions to the mates, asking for further details. It all stopped while the mate was calling you, sir, explained the second. We could hear the shots quite plainly. They seem to be using a gun as well as their revolvers, injected the mate without ceasing to stare into the darkness. For a while, the three men of them continued to discuss the matter, whilst down in the main deck the two watchers clustered along the starboard rail, and a low hum of talk rose fore and aft. Presently, the sky to starboard began to lighten with the solemn coming of the dawn. The light grew and strengthened, and the eyes of those on board the Terra Hawk scanned with growing intentness that portion of the horizon where showed the red and dwindling glow of the bark sidelight. Then, it was in that moment when all the world is full of the silence of the dawn, something passed over the quiet sea coming out of the east. A very faint, Long drawn out, screaming, piping noise. It might have also been the cry of a little wind wandering out of the dawn across the sea. A ghostly, piping skirl. So attenuated and elusive was it, but there was in it a weird, almost threatening noise that told the three on the poop it was no wind that made so dire and inhuman a sound. The noise ceased dying out in an indefinite mosquito-like shrilling, far and vague and minutely shrill. And so came the silence again. I heard that last night when they were shooting, said the second mate, speaking very slowly and looking first at the skipper and then at the mate, 
It was when you were below deck, calling the captain, he added. Shh, said the mate and held up a warning hand. But though they listened, there came no further sound. And so they fell to disjointed questionings, and guessed their answers as puzzled men will. And ever as anon they examined the bark through the glasses, but without discovering anything of note. Save that, when the light grew stronger, they perceived that her jib-boom had struck through the superstructure of the derelict, tearing a considerable gap therein. Presently, when the day had sufficiently advanced, the mate sung out to the third to take up a couple of the prentices and pass up the signal flags and the code book. This was done and a hoist made, but those in the bark took not the slightest heed, so that finally the captain bade them make up the flags and return them to the locker. After that he went down to consult the glass, and when he reappeared he and the mates had a short discussion, after which orders were given to hoist the starboard lifeboat. This, in the course of a half hour they managed, and after that six of the men and two of the apprentices were ordered into her. Then half a dozen rifles were passed down, with ammunition and the same number of cutlasses. These were all apportioned among the men, much to the disgust of the two apprentices, who were aggrieved that they should be passed over, but their feelings altered when the mate descended into the boat and handed them each a loaded revolver, warning them, however, to play no monkey tricks with the weapons. Just before the boat was to push off, Duthie came scrambling down the side ladder and jumped for the afterthwart. He landed and sat down, laying the rifle which he had brought in the stern, and after that, the boat put off for the bark. There were now ten in the boat, and all well-armed, so that the mate had a certain feeling of comfort that he would be able to meet any situation that was likely to arise. After nearly an hour's hard pulling, the heavy boat had been brought within some two hundred yards of the bark, and the mate sung out to the men to lie on their oars for a minute. Then he stood up and shouted to the people on the bark, but though he repeated his cry, SHIP AHOY! several times, there came no reply. He sat down and motioned to the men to give way again, and so brought the boat nearer to the bark by another hundred yards. Here he hailed again, but still receiving no reply, he stooped for his binoculars and peered for a while through them at the two vessels, the ancient derelict and the modern sailing vessel. The latter had driven clean in over the weed, her stern being perhaps two hundred score yards from the edge of the bank. Her jib-boom, as I have already mentioned, had pierced the green blotched superstructure of the derelict, so that her cut water had come very close to the grass-grown side of the hulk. That the derelict was indeed a very ancient vessel, it was now easy to see. For at this distance the mate could distinguish which was hull and which was superstructure. Her stern rose up to a height considerably above her bows, and possessed galleries coming round the counter. In the window frames, some of the glass still remained, but others were securely shuttered and some missing, frames and all, leaving dark holes in the stern and everywhere grew a dank green growth, giving to the beholder a queer sense of repulsion. 
Indeed, there was that about the whole of the ancient craft that repelled in a curious way, something elusive, a remoteness from humanity that was vaguely abominable. The mate put down his binoculars and drew his revolver, and at the action, each one in the boat gave an instinctive glance to his own weapon. Then he sang out to them to give way and steered straight for the weed. The boat struck it with something of a sog, and after that they advanced slowly, yard by yard. Only with considerable labor, they reached the counter of the bark, and the mate held out his hand for an oar. This he leaned up against the side of the vessel and a moment later was swarming quickly up it. He grasped the rail and swung himself aboard, then after a swift glance fore and aft, gripped the blade of the oar to steady it and bade the rest follow as quickly as possible, which they did, the last man bringing up the painter with him and making it fast to a cleat. Then commenced a rapid search through the ship. In several places about the main deck they found broken lamps and aft of the poop, a shotgun, three revolvers, and several capstan bars lying about the poop deck. But though they pried into every possible corner, lifting the hatches and examining the lazarette, not a human creature was to be found. The bark was absolutely deserted. After the first rapid search, the mate called his men together, for there was an uncomfortable sense of danger in the air and he felt that it would be better not to straggle. Then, he led the way forward and went up to the top gallant foxhole head. Here, finding the port side lamp still burning, he bent over the screen, lifted the lamp, opened it, and blew out the flame, then replaced the affair on its socket. After that, he climbed into the bows and out along the jib boom, beckoning the others to follow, which they did, no man saying a word and all holding their weapons handily, for each felt the oppressiveness of the incomprehensible about them. The mate reached the hole in the great superstructure and passed inside, the rest following. Here they found themselves in what looked like a great gloomy barracks, the floor of which was the deck of the ancient craft. The superstructure, as seen from the inside, was a very wonderful piece of work being beautifully shored and fixed, so that at one time it must have possessed immense strength, though now it was all rotted and showed many a gape and rip. In one place, near the center or midships part, was a sort of platform high up which the mate conjectured might have been used as a lookout, though the reason for the prodigious superstructure itself he could not imagine. Having searched the decks of this craft, he was preparing to go below when suddenly Duthie caught him by the sleeve and whispered to him, tensely to listen. He did so, and heard the thing that had attracted the attention of the youth. It was a low, continuous, shrill whining that was rising from out of the dark hull beneath their feet, and abruptly the mate grew aware of an intensely disagreeable animal-like smell in the air. He had noticed it in a subconscious fashion when entering through the broken superstructure, but now suddenly he was aware of it. Then as he stood there hesitating, the whining noise rose all at once into a piping, screaming squeal that filled all the place in which they were enclosed with an awful, inhuman and threatening clamor. 
The mate turned and shouted at the top of his voice to the rest to retreat to the bark, and he himself, after a quick nervous glance around, hurried towards the place where the end of the bark's jib boom protruded in across the decks. He waited with strained impatience, glancing ever behind him until all were off the derelict, and then sprang swiftly onto the spar that was their bridge to the other vessel. Even as he did so, the squealing died away into a tiny, shrilling, twittering sound that made him glance back, for the suddenness of the quiet was as effective as though it had been a loud noise. What he saw seemed to him in that first instant so incredible and monstrous that he was almost too shaken to cry out. Then he raised his voice in a shout of warning to the men, and a frenzy of haste shook him in every fiber as he scrambled back to the bark shouting ever to the men to get onto the boat. For in that backward glance, he had seen the whole decks of the derelict, a move with living things. Giant rats. Thousands and ten thousands of them, and so in an instant had come to an understanding of the disappearance of the crew of the bark. He reached the foxhole head now, and was running for the steps, and behind him, making all the long slanting length of the jib boom black, were the rats racing after him. He made one leap to the main deck and ran. Behind him sounded a queer multitudinous pattering noise swiftly surging upon him. He reached the poop steps and as he sprang up them felt a savage bite in his left calf. He was on the poop deck now and running with a stagger. A score of great rats leapt around him and half a dozen hung grimly to his back whilst the one that gripped his calf flogged madly from side to side as he raced on. He reached the rail, gripped it, and vaulted clean over and down into the weed. The rest were already in the boat, and strong hands and arms hove him aboard, whilst the others of the crew sweated in getting the little craft round from the ship. The rats still clung to the mate, but a few blows with a cutlass eased him of his murderous burden. Above him, making the rails and the half round of the poop black and alive raced thousands of rats. The boat was now about an oar's length from the bark, and suddenly Duthi screamed out, they were coming! In the same instant, nearly a hundred of the largest rats launched themselves at the boat. Most fell short into the weed, but over a score reached the boat and sprang savagely at the men, and there was a minute's hard slashing and smiting before the brutes were destroyed. Once more the men resumed their task of urging their way through the weed, and so in a minute or two had come to within a few fathoms of the edge working desperately. Then a fresh horror broke upon them. Those rats which had missed their leaps were now all about the boat, leaping in from the weed, running up the oars, and scrambling in over the sides. As each one got aboard, straight for one of the crew it went so that they were all bitten and bebled in scores of places. There ensued a short but desperate fight, and then when the last of the beasts had been hacked to death, the men lay once more to the task of heaving the boat clear of the weed. A minute passed, and they had come almost to the edge when Duthi cried out, Look! And at that all turned to stare at the bark, and perceived the thing that had caused the Prentice to cry out for the rats were leaping down into the weed in black multitudes, making the great weed fronds quiver as they hurled themselves in the direction of the boat. 
In an incredibly short pace of time, all the weeds between the boat and the bark were alive with the little monsters, coming at breakneck speed. The mate let out a shout, and snatching an oar from one of the men leapt into the stern of the boat and commenced to thrash at the weed with it, whilst the rest labored infernally to pluck the boat forth into the open sea. Yet despite their mad efforts and the death-dealing blows of the mate's great 14-foot oar, the black living mass were all about the boat and scrambling aboard in scores before she was free of the weed. As the boat shot into the clear water, the mate gave out a great curse and dropping his oar began to pluck the brutes from his body with his bare hands, casting them out into the sea. Yet fast almost as he freed himself, others sprang upon him, so that in another minute he was like to have been pulled down, for the boat was alive and swarming with pests, but that some of the men got to work with their cutlasses and literally slashed the brutes to pieces, sometimes killing several with a single blow. And thus in a while the boat was freed once more, though it was a sorely wounded and frightened lot of men that manned her. The mate himself took an oar, as did all those who were able, and so they rowed slowly and painfully away from that hateful derelict, whose crew of monsters even then made the weed all a heave with hideous life. From the Tarawak came urgent signals for them to haste, by which the mate knew that the storm which the captain had feared must be coming down upon the ship, and so he spurred each one to greater endeavor until at last they were under the shadow of their own vessel, with very thankful hearts, and bodies bleeding, tired and faint. Slowly and painfully the boat's crew scrambled up the side ladder, and the boat was hoisted aboard. But they had no time to tell their tale, for the storm was already upon them. It came half an hour later, sweeping down in a cloud of white fury from the eastward and blotting out all vestiges of the mysterious derelict and the little bark which had proven her victim. And after that for a weary day and night, they battled with the storm. When it passed, nothing was to be seen either of the two vessels or of the weed which had studded the sea before the storm, for they had been blown many a score leagues to the westward of the spot, and so had no further chance, nor, I believe, inclination to further investigate the mystery of the strange old derelict of a past time and her habitants of rats. Yet many a time and in many foxels had this story been told, and many a conjecture had been passed about how came that ancient craft abroad there in the ocean. Some have suggested, as indeed I have made bold to put forth as fact, that she must have drifted out of the lonesome Sargasso Sea. And in truth, I cannot but think that this is a reasonable supposition. Yet, of the rats that evidently dwelt in her, I have no reasonable explanation to offer. Whether they were true ship's rats, or a species that is to be found in the weed-haunted plains and islets of the Sargasso Sea, I cannot say. It may be that they are descendants of rats that lived in ships long centuries lost in the weed sea and which have learned to live among the weed, forming new characteristics and developing fresh powers and instincts. Yet, I cannot say, for I speak entirely without authority, and do but tell this story as it is told in the forecastle of many an old-time sailing ship.
that dark, brine-tainted place where the young men learn somewhat of the mysteries of the all-mysterious sea. The music in today's episode was provided by Epidemic Music. Please make sure to subscribe for free today on the platform of your choice, and if you can, leave us a rating or review. We also have a website, www.pulpthepodcast.com, where you can learn more about the show and search episodes by genre and author. You can also find us on Twitter at Pulp the Podcast, or reach out to me directly via email at jonathan at pulpthepodcast.com. If you love science fiction and horror, please check out our sister podcast, The Curious Matter Anthology, which presents full cast audio drama adaptations from authors like Philip K. Dick, Kurt Vonnegut, and Robert Block. It's even up for an Audioverse award. You can find Curious Matter Anthology via the link on our website or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Jonathan Pezzi, your host, and thank you for listening. The Fable and Folly Network, where fiction producers flourish.